Welcome to the Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. G, and sitting somewhere else in the universe is my fantastic co-host. Dr. Rad, we're still in lockdown. Yeah, so this is a sad time since we cannot be together, but it is also uh, an exciting time because it's time for a brand new episode and we are right at the tail end of the second decemvirate and boy do we have some exciting events coming up in this episode i believe certain people may be going to die oh my goodness yeah so please join us on this episode as we trace the journey of rome from the founding of the city so we're finally in the aftermath of all the the second decemvirate the rule of the ten men the second secession where the plebs once again said no not not taking part in this system, we're out. It's just too unfair. I'm moving to a different hill. That's right. You can keep your seven hills. I like this one. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've got a lot, obviously, of drama that has been happening, and this episode is going to be all about the aftermath of that. But on the plus side, we finished on a happy note last time because the Decembers, you know, officially resigned and everyone came back together. So there was a brief moment where it seemed like the people of Rome were kind of happy. A brief moment, a brief moment. And yet some people need to pay for what has happened. There has been a sort of a coming together of the Roman population, but now we sort of move swiftly into what feels like the retribution phase that follows in the wake of the 2nd December because egregious acts have happened and somebody needs to carry the can for that. And the Romans, they never shy away from a little bit of violence to get things done right. And that is kind of where we're at. Indeed we are. All right, Dr. G, let's dive into it. sunny day in ancient Rome. <laughs> the birds were singing. Lucius Valerius Petitus and Marcus Horatius Barbatus had finally risen to the position of the consulship. And the exciting news on the street is, wait, we have consuls again? I know, I know. Last episode, we were so concerned just about getting the tribunes back, let alone getting the consuls back. But now that the tribunes are back, it is time to have some new consuls. And you couldn't really overlook Valerius and Horatius after all that they have done for the people at the end of that second secession, second December period. And they're probably both patricians. So there is that. They seem to have been, we know from them from previous episodes of being relatively sympathetic with the plebeian cause. And this has really worked out in their favor now that the second December is a bit done and dusted. And they do achieve some really particular things during their consulship as well, as we'll see. Now, some of these are sort of we've touched upon uh, in our previous episode. Uh, so if you haven't listened to episode 117 yet, go back and, and check that out. But I think we'll be touching upon some of them again here just to give that holistic feel to this year. Definitely. I think it's, it is interesting that these are the two men that are chosen for the consulship or elected to the consulship because definitely in Livy's account, he makes it clear that whilst they do have that patrician background and whilst they're not out to get the patricians, 
The patricians are still a little upset at their election because I think they feel that their loyalties don't 100% lie with their own kind, Dr. G. And so this is a little a little concerning for the other patricians, particularly the, the very gung-ho ones that I imagine thought Appius Claudius was just great. And we're going to see how that upset plays out as well because one of the things that gets attached to this particular consulship is this idea that there is a suite of laws that are passed called the Leges Horatii Valeriae. So that's just taking those consular names and whacking them in together, which is always a good way to name a law. And part of what the suite of laws pertain to are things like there will be a change in the way that decisions are made. So the idea that the plebeian assembly can meet but now the decisions that they make will be legally binding, not just upon plebeians, but upon the whole Roman citizenry. That's an innovation. Definitely. Then we also get some protections coming into play for the Tribune of the Plebs. This is the sort of first moment that we come across this idea that maybe their bodies will be considered sacrosanct, which means that while they hold office, you're not supposed to touch them. Goodness knows how they have sex. Hands up. uh, Hands up. (laughs) (laughs) Don't touch me. I'm precious. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're celibate for a year. Maybe they're not. It's hard to know. And we also get this idea of the right of provocatio. And provocatio is this really cool concept. And it is at play in a big way in the later Republic. And our sources for this period. So I'm reading Dionysius of Halicarnassus you're reading Livy, they're writing much later. So there is some conjecture among scholars about whether these laws that are ascribed to these two consuls actually took place in this year. But even if there is a little bit of uh, haziness around that, something like provocatio does become really quite important and it has to be established at some point. So part of me is like, why not now? If not now, when? Yes, exactly. And there are some theories, though. Um, But provocatio is the right of each Roman citizen to summon the people to oppose the magisterial power of enforcement. So there's this special aspect of being a magistrate, which is coercitio. And this is the Latin term that we can see coercion come from. And it's kind of like they've been given the legal power to ensure that you have to do something. Now, there are times that are now put down in law where people can oppose being coerced to do something. If it is at high risk uh, to the people, generally speaking, and when their lives might be in danger, they can, according to this law, they can now stand up to that, get the people together and be like, no, no, we oppose this kind of risk to our personhood. And this means that there is now not just a, a formalized way of the people to react against what magistrates might be asking them to do, it kind of means that magistrates will have to curtail what they propose because it might need to be reasonable to start off with. What? A reasonable law? Get out of town. It's tough out there. (laughs) Well, you know, to be honest, I know there have definitely been some questions raised about the historicity of these laws. And some academics, I believe, have even gone so far as to assert that this didn't happen. And I think that ties into what we've had to highlight before with the second December and the second secession. There have definitely been some opinions expressed that those things aren't historical either, that they didn't really happen or that they largely didn't happen. But like you and I have been highlighting, even though it's important to acknowledge that we don't know for certain what is absolute fact and what may be later invention or what may have been lost or mistranslated over time, The ins and outs of these stories, I think our listeners are probably seeing, are just so complicated. And they do seem to have so much importance to the Romans themselves that there does seem to have to be something that they are referring to here. And so it does, in my opinion, make sense that these are the kinds of laws that would be passed in the aftermath of something like the Second December, something like the Second Secession, because they are actually focusing on the issues that have been raised during this time period. During the second December, one of the things that the Decembers had was that nobody was allowed to appeal. That was one of the conditions. And so it, these laws make sense, more sense, you might think, than the 12 tables themselves in some ways. And the 12 tables, I mean, they cop a bit of a weird rap for being so strange. 
<laughs> but that's kind of how we got to this point. And But it seems that there's been some really important potentially legal reforms that have come through as a consequence, which you would assume would relate to some sort of conflict. Um, it's very rarely the case that laws are passed to actually look after the vulnerable and exploited lower classes unless that legislation has been forced through, through things like protest and uh, standing up for your rights and things like that. So it's not in the interests of those in power like the patricians to make things easy for the plebeians who they like to push around. Why would they? I mean, they could just push you around. It's, way, it's just simpler that way. So there's that sense in which I think we have to assume that there has been some kind of conflict and part of the way that it gets resolved is through legal reform. Now, the diehard patricians, as you say, they're not very happy about this, but they're pretty embarrassed at this point by their association with the decemvirs. And so they kind of go along with these legal changes, even though they're not super excited about them. Yes, definitely. Marcus Duilius actually becomes a bit of a major character in my account, as well as Valerius and Horatius during this time. It's not just them putting forward ideas. And he has been a character in our previous episodes. So he, he was a bit of a messenger in one of our previous episodes during the Second Secession. So he also makes a suggestion to the plebeians at this time that if someone tried to take away their tribunes again or tried to elect magistrates that had no right of appeal as part of the conditions, that they should be scourged or beheaded. And so they're also on board with these sorts of suggestions. It doesn't seem to be just Valerius and Horatius that are putting forward these sorts of ideas because he has become one of the, the tribunes for this year because of, I suppose, his his role and his prominence in the previous event. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got this uh, whole list of these new tribunes because there's 10 of them now. Yeah. So it's an incredible number of tribunes to have. And it seems that the tribunes are really working in close alignment with these new consuls. They do have a, a sort of a mutual support and that's going to play out in particular ways this year as well. And I do have this detail in Dionysius's account about the way in which if you reduce the number of the tribunes, um, you can be put to death, but it's not ascribed to a particular tribune. It's just sort of bound up in the way that Dionysius discusses the suite of the laws and what's happening with them. So I think that's an interesting difference with Livy. Yeah, I think he's more talking about the, the similar sorts of ideas that are coming through in these supposed laws that Valerius and Horatius put forward. And certainly, as you say, none of these things are designed to make the patricians happy, but at the moment, none of them are singly being targeted. So whilst they aren't happy about it, they're happy enough to let it go through because, as you say, of what's been happening. But once they have these laws in place, once these reforms are going forward, it seems like the plebeians start to get more confident in my account. And this is where they decide, now is the time to strike, strike against our enemies. And so very fittingly in Livy's account, Virginius, who is one of the tribunes for this year, is chosen by the rest of the tribunes to go after none other than Appius Claudius vengeance will be had absolutely now i absolutely love the way that this plays out in livy's account because virginius of course summons appius to answer to the charges and appius could not be playing up to his terrible image more he rocks up to the forum attended by none other than the young hot patrician oh yeah whoop, 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 whoop. Looking for some action. <laughs> he's riding along on a hoverboard as he's being dragged along by a Ferrari. <laughs> oh, dear. Classic patrician move. Now, if I'm being kind, if I'm being kind, obviously you wouldn't want to show up by yourself to something like this. It makes sense that he'd want some protection, but I just love that Livy's specifying that it's the, it's the young hot patricians. Well, he says young patricians. I say young hot patricians. <laughs> The hotheads have uh, retained their uh, loyalty to Appius Claudius in this dire moment of being accused of a crime. Yes, absolutely. So Virginius seemingly is trying to speed things up a little bit with proceedings. And so he's not really interested in hearing Appius speak at this initial moment, which is obviously not going to set a good tone for proceedings as far as Appius Claudius is concerned, or as far as his 
patrician support as are concerned but he's like look we don't need to go back and forth about this oratory is not really about the truth <laughs> oratory is up for a matter of debate and i don't think you need to go into it right now and he brushes aside a lot of the crimes that appius claudius supposedly committed during his time as december and what he really wants to focus on is of course the attempt to seize a free person that free person being his own daughter, Virginia, or Virginia, if you want to really feel the Latin, yeah. <laughs> yes, this is not a surprise at all. I think there is ways in which Dionysius' account deviates from this um, to a certain extent. And definitely it seems that the tribunes are the at the forefront of this call for bringing the death and viz to justice. Yes. And so they're getting the plebeians whipped up about that, but it's actually them that are going about it. And as you say, it's uh, Lucius Virginius, the father of poor Virginia, who is sort of given the space to be the chief accuser um, to try and bring Appius Claudius to justice, which is pretty interesting because as it turns out, a lot of Virginia's relations have ended up being tribunes. And... Yes. So Lucius Aquilius, uh, her fiancé, is in there. And Publius Numitorius, uh, her relation on her mother's side, is also in the mix. So there are quite a few characters in the Tribunate who are anti-Appius Claudius in a big way. But obviously, Virginius is the most symbolic of those three, having been the one who actually stabbed his daughter to death in the forum in an attempt to save her from being so besmirched by Appius Claudius. Things get pretty out of hand pretty quickly with this scenario though and I'm interested in how Livy might be dealing with this because the next thing that Dionysius tells us is when Appius Claudius gets into the forum to to go through this process they basically are like look we're going to put you on trial. That's how this is going to work. And in order to make sure that that runs smoothly, we're going to have to put you in prison. That is very much what happens in Livy's account. That's that's essentially what it, what Virginius is trying to get to, I think, at this early stage. He's saying, look, unless you can produce someone who right now can verify your innocence on this charge of trying to seize a free person, then you are going to go to prison where you will remain until the official trial takes place. Now, of course, Appius is having none of that. He's never been one to just lie down and accept matters. So in my accounts, he starts appealing to the tribunes of all people. <laughs> you just never know who can be persuaded. <laughs> I guess as well, obviously, the idea being that they might be able to change Virginius's mind or maybe, maybe even a bit of this veto power idea coming through, perhaps. Who knows? But none of them, of course, are going to step in and stop proceedings because as you highlighted, Half of them seem to be related to Virginia in some way, so they're not going to have any interest in helping him. And so Appius Claudius is arrested. And again, he's still not accepting this. He's still protesting all the way there. He's appealing. I just behaved as any good Claudian would. <laughs> Absolutely. And the, the people who are standing around watching this are a bit taken aback because they're thinking, are you seriously saying that you, a free person, should not be dragged off to prison? Are you seriously trying to appeal to the people and appeal to the tribunes for someone to intervene after what you did? I think the irony is kind of hitting them in the face and they're, they're shocked. <laughs> well, fair enough. I'm interested in what happens next to Appius Claudius in your version of events. <laughs> Well, the people seem very happy with the way things are going and they're muttering amongst themselves as they watch this scene, talking about how, well, I guess this is proof that the gods do exist because finally there's some justice happening in front of us here. Appius Claudius is finally getting what he deserves. And yet... Praise be. <laughs> and yet the irony is definitely something that's bothering them. The fact that he's asking for the right to appeal, the fact that he's asking for protection from the people and that he doesn't want to go to prison, it all just seems too much in some ways. And so they're quite shocked, I think, that the audacity at what he is doing here. Appius definitely believes that he needs to be given the, the chance to defend himself. He thinks this is something that all citizens are entitled to, and he wants to be judged properly by the Roman people. He thinks that he is going to be judged fairly <laughs> if he's allowed to have the defense. Now, I don't know 
on what planet he is interpreting judged fairly to mean because he did he did do this thing he did try and seize virginia so i don't know exactly what he's expecting but what we've i mean what we've seen is that with patricians when they get a chance to talk and get out their rhetorical chops that often they manage to convince people of terrible things so i'm wondering if he thinks that you know it's worked up until now when I stand up and talk, I've managed to convince a lot of people about a lot of things. Maybe it'll work again. <laughs> this is true. Look, he does have, obviously, the rhetorical training that is necessary, which not everybody would necessarily have. But I think now it becomes clear why he's resorting to these sorts of theatrics. And it's because he's pointing out that if you do all of these things to me, if you actually go ahead and do this, then you're becoming the thing that you hate. That's right. You live long enough, you'll live to see yourself become the villain. You're going to be just like the Decembers if you send me to prison without giving me my fair say. Ha! How you like them apples? Send him to prison anyway! <laughs> the Tribune certainly are just like, yeah, okay, okay, guy. You can try that all you like, but it's not going to work on us. We are not convinced. Again, he starts appealing to the people and also the recent laws that have just been passed. You know, who is going to be protected, he's saying, if Appius Claudius, of all people, is not protected? <laughs> I am the most important person in Rome. If I am not protected, then none of you are protected. <laughs> I mean, you can't fault him on the logic there. That does seem a pretty powerful kind of thing to say. Yeah, I love this particular line as well from the translation that I'm reading. His own case would show whether the new statutes had established tyranny or freedom, and whether the appeal of the tribunes and that to the people against the injustice of magistrates had been merely a parade of meaningless forms or had been really granted. <laughs> well, 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 the best legal minds have applied themselves to the case, and it would seem that we these laws need a proper test, and who better than Appius Claudius? arch nemesis of all things good in Rome. Absolutely. He's definitely very clever. I mean, to be to be rolling with the times like this and trying to use that kind of language. I mean, to be honest, it reminds me of some of the stuff that we see coming out of a lot of countries, but particularly countries like America, where whenever there is, you know, some political point they really want to get people on board with, they whip out the old tyranny or freedom. There is no other choice kind of rhetoric. So I, I do admire his intellect in this situation. His back's up against a wall, but he's giving it everything he's got. And he's like, what about this binary? Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Now, Virginius feels that only Appius Claudius is not entitled <laughs> to the rights of an average citizen. So he says, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not the case that if not you, then, you know, who else? It's the case of you are the exception. You are the exception to the rule, pal. Okay. And so he obviously senses that Appius Claudius is perhaps making a very persuasive point here. And he has to remind the crowd, you know, it wasn't that long ago, guys, that he was a tyrant. Remember all the things that he did that were really terrible as a decimver? You know, he can appeal all that he likes, but he's still not dealing with the actual charge that he did something wrong. This is not about his innocence. He's just he's just spouting off rhetoric to try and convince you over to his side. This is so fascinating because there's a lot of talk happening. There is a still, lot of talk happening. They're still in public. And I feel like this is might be the time, the first time in Livy in a long time where we've had a lot of talk happening in public. <laughs> and no one objects to what Virginius is saying. They they understand where he's coming from, certainly. But what Appius has said is actually starting to rankle. Certainly some people in the crowd are feeling the effect of what he has highlighted. And there is a feeling of guilt nagging at some of them. Because for all the things that he did as a decimver, if we still think of Appius Claudius in the same way that the Romans think of Appius Claudius, he's still an elite man who has certainly performed some worthwhile actions for his state. And so they wonder if maybe, maybe their liberty is carrying them away with themselves. Maybe they are being too excessive in what they are doing. And it is the case that before we got into the second Decemberate, 
Appius Claudius had accrued quite a lot of popularity for being what appeared to be a very moderate patrician in some respects. And so if people are in an emotional space and they're thinking about how they've felt about this guy over time, there's probably some grounds for empathy to a certain extent. And I think that's exactly what they're tapping into. And it's it's kind of interesting to highlight this. I mean, Livy might be doing it because he is sympathetic, perhaps more to the elite cause. That might be his motivation here. But maybe it is also highlighting for us that obviously not everybody feels the same way. As we've tried to highlight many times, we don't really know who makes up the plebeians. We don't really know who makes up the patricians, although they're a little bit easier to nail down because there's less of them and they tend to be more prominent in our accounts. But it's very hard to say exactly what the makeup is. And so it's interesting to, I suppose, entertain the idea that not everybody is always going to be on board for exactly the same thing. And I think it's also the case that, as you say, because the lines between what makes somebody a patrician and what makes somebody a plebeian are not necessarily fully clear cut, although our narrative sources tend to suggest that people definitely knew. So we've got this idea that might be analogous to thinking about class to a certain extent, but we also know that there are a whole bunch of patrician family names that have plebeian branches to them. So it's like, what makes the patrician a patrician as opposed to the plebeian? And sometimes it might not be that much. While we tend to sort of like, broaden out that difference in order to talk about how some people are being definitely exploited in Rome. There's probably some really quite prominent and powerful plebeians who are probably more close to a patrician in the way that they go about their world than to other plebeians who might be, you know, this sort of the infantry that's called up and living on the farm and doing all of that labor. And so there is that sense in which Rome is a melting pot of of different uh, categories. Nobody just fits discreetly at one end of the spectrum or the other. No, I think we can even we can even see that in the second decemvirate itself. Maybe even the first decemvirate, but definitely the second decemvirate. There does seem to have been that mix of patricians and plebeians, and so we can definitely see that there are some plebeians that are going to be more prominent and perhaps more have more in common with some of the patrician class than they do your average. Roman on the street at this point in time but nonetheless the trial is going to go ahead because a date is set now here is one of my favorite characters from your account because he was in mine but only in a minor way he made a big splash in one of our previous episodes in your account this is where Gaius Claudius comes back into my account oh boy (laughs) yeah now we know we know from our previous episodes that he was never a fan of the Decemvirate and he also was horrified at the actions of his own relative, Appius, okay? We remember he gave some very long speeches in your account about how disgusted he was by Appius's actions and that he ended up being so unhappy with the situation and the fact that Appius wasn't listening to him that he actually retired to Regulus where they had some family (laughs) estates. Uh, Yeah, I'm getting out of here, guys. I can't stand you people anymore. Least of all, my own nephew, who's terrible right now. (laughs) I don't even want to look at you. I disown being Roman. But now it's time for him to come back into the story because as much as he might have all of these feelings, Appius is still family and he doesn't want this trial to go ahead. And so he comes back to Rome to beg pardon for Appius and he dresses himself up in filthy clothes, obviously trying to play the part of a sort of suppliant. He's accompanied by a bunch of his clients and they're going around begging for the support of people in the forum, saying that, look, we're not saying that Appius Claudius was perfect. We're not saying that everything he did was right by the Roman people, but the Claudian name, the Claudian name, it cannot be shamed. And pointing out that Appius has to be remembered with honour for some of the things that he has done. So, for example, he has played a part in bringing about this particular codification of the laws. You know, he has served the state. He should not be in prison with the average riffraff of Rome. Good God, man, you can't leave him like that. He's going to starve. And this is not because... He and Appius have made up now that Appius has fallen on hard times. He's purely doing this for the family name. I mean, you don't get something much more Roman than that. Yeah, and this is where we see how important family really is because I don't think that Gaius Claudius 
probably cares two figs for Appius at this point, but it's very important that the Claudian Gens in general upholds its reputation and it does have a very long and what they consider to be a noble claim as a family in Rome. Definitely. And he even talks about the fact that this is this is a person whose mask is going to be paraded in ancestral events and, and rites. And that's obviously referring to the practice of the Romans having those death masks of ancestors that they would have displayed in their homes and then on special occasions would be taken out and would be a part of family rights of various kinds. Yeah, look, this is all very interesting and so different from what is in Dionysius. So please continue. (laughs) Okay, so Virginius then has to come out once again and say, sure, I get where you're coming from, Claudian people, but need I remind you that my daughter is dead? What about my family? My daughter is literally in the ground because of the actions that Appius Claudius took. So what about my family? And you know what? Let's forget about that for a second. What about the fact that the Claudians have been tyrannizing the plebeians for ages? What about that, huh? Yeah, it has been going on for generations at this point. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And all the tribunes, of course, are on his side and they're working to whip up the crowd. And luckily they successfully managed to sway the opinion of the people. I have one final point in this story to tell you, but I, it is it is very important. And so I feel like I should perhaps pause there and hear what Dionysius has to say, because otherwise I'm going to ruin the climax of your story. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but also maybe not, because my story swiftly moves to the climax. Okay. Um, we get this sense in which Virginius is given the case of Appius Claudius Appius Claudius is brought into into the public, like called to trial and immediately arrested. There is no conversation. He gets sent immediately to prison. Nobody has any time to navigate that. So Gaius Claudius is not on the scene at this stage when this is already happening, although he does come back later in Dionysius of Halicarnassus's account. Right. But if I tell you any more... That's the climax. Okay, so here's how Livy's account goes. After Gaius Claudius has tried really hard and clearly failed to win over the people, to convince them that, look, we just can't go ahead with this, this is crazy, Appius has lost all hope. Finally, finally, he is chastened. (laughs) Wow, that took some doing. (laughs) It, It took some doing, it took some doing. But he decides that there's no point waiting for a trial. What trial is he really going to get? And so whilst he's in prison, he commits suicide. What? That is the end of Appius Claudius and Livy's account. What? No. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) After all of that, he's just like, nope, I hang up my tootsies. I die. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, there's been a lot of talking, Dr. G. There's a lot of fine rhetoric, legal argumentation that's gone into all of this. So I can kind of see maybe where he's coming from. And you know what? I don't think he wants to give them the satisfaction. That's the kind of guy that he is. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So Dionysius does come in with a little bit of a, a slight difference on that account because he recounts how before the day of the appointed trial, so Appius Claudius has been held in prison. We're not sure for how long. Presumably not that long. What's, what could the backload be? Are the decimvirs on trial? <laughs> um, and so, and they, they go to collect him for the trial itself and they fa- find him hanged in his cell. Wow. And it could be suicide, oh. but the suspicion is that the consuls have given the tribunes the say-so to have him murdered. <gasps> what a scandal! Yes. So this reminds me of that case in America recently with that uh, guy that was he's, who was put in jail for, like, heinous crimes that they were looking into related to, like, molestation of young women. Jeffrey Epstein? Yes, that yes. guy. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. remember his name. But yes, and he's found hanged in his cell. Yeah. And... The story is always that it's a suicide. Right. But in that case, and in this case, in a weird historical parallel, the suspicion is immediately like, no, 
they would not have done that. That's a killing. And we just don't know who did it. But the suspicion falls immediately upon the tribunes. And the theory is, and this is something that is maybe being pushed by the really sort of strong conservative patrician set, is that the consuls actually okayed it. That is fascinating because Livy does not mention that at all as a possibility. And to be honest, it didn't even occur to me because I always have to keep in the back of my mind that the Romans have a very different view of suicide than we do in the modern culture. It is a way of potentially restoring your honour and restoring your family name if you feel that you have disgraced it somehow to commit suicide. So it actually kind of made sense to me when I was reading through Livy's account that Appius Claudius might have been driven to take this action, but now I am not so sure. Well, yeah, because it could be considered really quite noble from a Roman perspective, being like, I will preserve the honour of myself and my family and my great deeds by not going through this process of a tri- of a trial, which I believe is a farce anyway. Yes. But the problem for Dionysius of Halicarnassus is that he does also, as a source, he does bring Gaius Claudius the uncle back into it. Right. And this is where I think there's something to be said for Livy's account, because the way that Dionysius of Halicarnassus does it does feel a little strange. And so it's kind of like later in the year and all of a sudden Gaius Claudius turns up and he says, basically, this has been a crime against my family because you did not allow the space for us to pursue justice through the proper forms, we weren't able to do a supplication. So he talks about getting dressed up in rags. You know, like, we would have done that stuff if we'd had the opportunity. You know, we would have we would have played all of our cards as a family um, to look after Appius Claudius in this trial, and you took that away from us by having him murdered in his cell. <gasps> this is so different. I can't believe it. My mind is like being blown. I've never been so glad that we're reading different sources in my life. <laughs> it's just it's fascinating but it does feel like a really strange sort of thing for him to say but he comes out and he says we would have tried everything and all of the techniques that we would have used to help save him you denied us and it twigs for me that there is something to be said about what does a family member get to decide to do in accordance or outside of the agreement of the family because what Gaius Claudius is suggesting is that there's no way that Appius Claudius would have taken his life unless he'd already agreed with his family that that was the right thing to do and that was the best course of action. Interesting. So the fact that he dies without that happening seems to bolster suspicion. See, I wonder if Livy has framed his account the way that he has because he wants to highlight the way that the people are behaving now that they seemingly have the upper hand. I mean, let's face it, they don't really. But in his mind, now that they've got these these new liberties and they've got the tribunes back, and certainly he talks about the fact that the rule of Valerius and Heratius was certainly one that was considered good for the people. <laughs> um, and so I wonder if he is trying to point out what has happened to Appius Claudius in relation to the laws and really and really draw that connection. And that's why he's potentially written it the way that he has. Yeah, and emphasising how this is a law that is really supportive of plebeian interests over patrician interests, potentially. He does actually even highlight that there is some confusion, even in his day, about what these laws actually involve. Because... As we highlighted before, there there have definitely been people who have suggested that these are completely unhistorical. Part of the reason for that is that some of these laws have later laws that seem to be about the same thing. And so there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that, for example, they're even sometimes associated with the same family. So that law that you were talking about, about the right to appeal, there have been three laws about that, one in 509, one in 449, which is where we are now, and one in 300 BC, and they're all associated with someone who's a Valerius. And so it does obviously seem a little bit of a coincidence, and therefore I suppose the suggestion is that our sources might be making making it up. Maybe, maybe they want the one from 300 BC to have that connection to earlier people or the or the family or something or earlier laws and so they're kind of retrojecting that connection back 
But what has also been highlighted is we can't know for sure that these laws are exactly the same in terms of what they are saying. They might be all about the right of appeal for a citizen, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are saying exactly the same thing about the right of appeal, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for like, because it feels a bit like a chicken and the egg problem because family histories are hugely significant for from a Roman perspective and the sense of community that is tied up in their gens is massive. Yes. And from a Western perspective, coming from sort of like a nuclear family structure, perhaps uh, we don't sort of recognize immediately the significance that that has for these people. But there's this oral history legacy of the stories that are passed down from family to family. And if the Valerii are passing down stories about these are the kinds of laws that we've been involved in. And this is the kind of stuff that we look after when it comes to Rome. And it's like, it would not be out of imagination to see younger Valerii coming through that gens, hearing these stories about their family and being like, well, that's a law that needs to be improved or there's room to grow on that. And I can build the family's legacy and reputation by fighting the same sorts of battles. And I think that's worth keeping in mind as well, because as you say, and I think Cornell in the early history of Rome talks about this, is that we we can't really be sure about the nature of these laws. Um, we're not sure that they're the same. There could be amendments. And the thing is that Romans never really eliminate any laws either. They're always building on top of what they've already got. So yes. they don't retire laws really often. They just kind of, things just sort of fall out of play. And so it seems to me that there's really good grounds for wondering how these things play out certainly in terms of family reputation and how people get involved in politics in the first place and if you're carrying that weight of tradition with you that might have an effect absolutely and and that's exactly it I, i was very persuaded by cornell's arguments that these different laws that we're seeing yes they are along the same theme but if you look at them they are some time apart and the romans as you say they do often legislate on issues that already exist but that's because they're either needing to restore a law that's kind of fallen out of practice or something's obviously happened that's triggered the need to reassert that this is the way we do things which is very much the case obviously after the second december and the second secession everything's chaotic and certainly as well, modification of existing laws. And because we, we can't be 100% sure about these details. I mean, to think about one of the other laws that supposedly was passed by Valerius and Horatius, this idea of the plebiscites. So this idea that decisions that were passed by the people became binding decisions on everybody. Certainly there are similar laws to that as we progress through the conflict of the orders. And what Cornell has suggested is that Perhaps this 449 law was removing some of the restrictions around the plebiscites, but there might still have been some limits as to how they applied or who they applied to. And we just don't know perhaps exactly what those limits were. And those later laws were perhaps basically moving along until there were no restrictions and they just blanket applied to everybody. Yeah. And I think this is probably a good spot to actually wrap up this episode because Finally, uh, Appius Claudius has met his demise, but there's actually so much more that happens in this year. And I think to do it justice, we might need to save it for another episode. All right. Well, Dr. G, if Appius Claudius is dead, then you know what that means. It is time for the partial pick. Yes, thank you, Igor. He's here with me in lockdown. (laughs) So lucky to have such a friendly presence in your home. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the partial pick. This is where the Romans are tested uh, against all of the standards that they consider important. There are 50 golden eagles up for grabs and across five categories, and we'll see how they go. Indeed. All right, Dr. G, what is our first category? Our first category is military clout. Definitely no military action happening in this episode. Now, there is definitely some military details coming up in this year, but not in this episode. 
Mm, watch this space. Yes. So that's a that's a big zero. I'm afraid it is. I'm afraid it is. Oh, sad times. Well, our second category is diplomacy. I don't think you can class what's going on here. There's a lot of talking, but is it diplomacy? I don't think so. No, I think it's justice slash vengeance. <laughs> yes, exactly. And if it is indeed a murder in a prison cell, Ooh. that is the very opposite of justice. And I feel like, are we able to give out minus eagles? I don't <laughs> think so, but that's a solid zero. <laughs> All right, what's our next category? Ooh, expansion. Nope. Afraid not. Yep. <laughs> we haven't been able to talk about this in so long. I mean, where has all the expansion gone, Rome? Where has it gone? <laughs> They've been very caught up in their domestic affairs. It's been tough. They have, they have. All right, that leaves us with the fourth category of weirdos. Okay, I feel like kind of, but kind of not. I think it's more in my account, perhaps, than in your account. Yeah, I'm kind of fascinated by the way that Livy is navigating this, because to go from somebody who's got almost no rhetorical sort of speeches for such a long time to all of a sudden there's so much conversation going on. I mean, I'm impressed, but I don't... Where's the weird to us? Is, are we trying to claim now that Appius Claudius might be actually... If he does indeed commit suicide, is that an act of weirdness? Well, this is what I'm not sure about now, because I was thinking maybe a little bit, and also I was wondering about Gaius Claudius. I mean, is what he does for Appius, I mean, is that weirdness? It's not, I know it's not battle and it's not exactly a grand stand of rhetoric or anything like that, but I don't know. I, I feel confused. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think, I don't know if it really fits necessarily into like Roman ideals of masculinity or just the Roman sense of loyalty to family and protecting the Gens. Yeah, I feel like it is definitely, a, it is a Roman value that he is living up to. You know, he's definitely showing that pietas, but it's not, that doesn't make it weird to us, does it? No. No. And But as I say, the, the suicide, I don't know how to feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say... If it is suicide, right. then that gets us, you know, that could be a lot of weird to us. But right. if it's murder, that's not a lot of weird to us. So then maybe giving it a five to be like, we're not sure whether he was murdered or not. <laughs> Do you know what, though? I also resent giving Appius Claudius any eagles whatsoever. So, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give I'm gonna give him a two and he can just wow. spin in his grave wherever he Ouch. is. Yeah. There, you can't save yourself. You dug the hole too deep, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, this is from a plebeian to you, patrician, Appius Claudius. I get to judge you. <laughs> nice, nice. Two it is. Yeah. Well, this is saving Rome from a zero score, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, it is indeed. And the final category is the citizen score. Okay, now I really feel like we have something to work with here. Whilst the citizens are mostly just standing around muttering as other people talk, I definitely think that... Livy tells me that the rule of Valerius and Horatius as consuls is definitely a good time to be a citizen of Rome. Almost too much of a good time because it makes the patricians concerned. And we've definitely seen those laws come into place. And I am going to say definitely that there is something historical about those laws. They make sense to me given what we have been looking at. And both you and I believe that there is something going on with the second December and the second secession, we believe there is something historical about that. So I feel like this is a very positive time to be a citizen of Rome. I think there is a lot to be gained um, for citizens in this moment in time. And obviously there's that sort of scholarly quibble about when these laws came in, but at some point they did. Yes. And as far as the narrative is concerned, the Romans think that they came in now. Yes. And, and that's fine. So if we run with that, being able to have 10 tribunes, that's quite a significant number of, of people uh, looking after their back all of a sudden. Being able to have this option about provocatio, um, to be able to resist some of the things that they might otherwise be coerced to do. Yeah. And also having the binding nature of some of the decisions that are made in those patrician, oh, sorry, plebeian assemblies be binding across the whole population that is hugely significant as well. And so I think as a citizen, your rights have measurably increased. Definitely, definitely. In this moment. I admit, you know, when we first started talking about this particular Valerius, I had my doubts about him. I wasn't so sure how I felt about him because I know 
that the previous Valerius really was, you know, the friend of the people, the man of the people. And I didn't know if this guy was going to be able to live up to that. Now, whether Livy and Dionysius are making it up because the first Valerius was around after the expulsion of the kings, this one's around after the Decembers, I'm liking the cut of his jib. It's working for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and this is the thing about looking at these analyst historians as well because they're feeding into these family histories I think and they're taking some of their stories from them and the Valerii have this reputation already established of being a friend of the people and in some cases this guy's name is also written with Publicola as part of his name oh yeah so he does get that as well attached to him and it might be this moment that does it for him And so that's an interesting sort of way of approaching what is going on here as well. Because if you've got a patrician in power who is a friend of the people, maybe your life as a Roman citizen is not so bad. All right. So what's it going to be, Dr. G? How are we going to rate this overall? I I feel like it's got to be an eight or a nine. Yeah, look, to me, it's up there. Um, It doesn't get much better than having a piece of legislation or indeed three or four pieces of legislation that actually really enhance your rights and privileges as a citizen. So I'm popping it in as a nine or a 10. All right, let's go for a nine. Cause I feel like we're still not getting quite enough insight into what's going on for the people at this point in time. So it's a nine, which means that we have a grand total of 11 out of 50 golden eagles for Rome. <laughs> oh, Rome. Failing us once again. (laughs) You know what, though? I don't feel bad about this one because I feel like the only reason why this is a fail is because we didn't have time to talk about all the military stuff that is going to happen apparently in this year, which must be the most action-packed year of Rome's history. Makes you a little bit suspicious about the analytic approach to history. (laughs) But certainly it's a wild ride because it is not over yet. 449 lives to fight another day. Oh, 449 is just getting started. You thought the death of Appius Claudius was big. Just you wait till you hear what happens next. Yeah, I think this has been a positive episode. I actually feel quite cheerful. (laughs) It's been a pleasure chatting to you as always. And you, Dr. G. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. If you enjoyed our work, then please consider becoming a Patreon. Patreons get early access to our special episodes. And today we'd like to give a special shout out to Joel, Justine and Joshua. It is your support that helps keep this podcast going. However, if you are not in the position to be a Patreon, there are other ways that you can support the show. You can give us a five-star review on iTunes and you can help to spread the word by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.